This episode of See Here is... Wait a minute. Where the hell is everybody? Episode 6 of the See Here podcast. Now, this is a little bit of an unusual one because normally the See Here crew is myself, uh, Tim Merrill, Wendy Freeman, and Bernard Stickroll, but my three compatriots are not here today because I think they've all gone off to audition for America's Got Talent, England's Got Talent, and Korea's Got Talent. And so they've just basically left me in the lurch to record this episode by myself. By myself, did I say? No, because I went and put the call out to the wonderful See Here community. And from Denmark, Mr. Hank Hellman has stepped onto the breach to join me for this episode of See Here so we can talk together about a movie for you. Good evening slash afternoon, Hank. Hello. It's uh, early afternoon here. Very happy to be here making my long-awaited podcasting debut. Yay. May it be, uh, <laughs> may it be the first of many more. Really looking forward well, to uh, having this chat with you. Of course, if you, you have to feel comfortable, but um, if you do, it'll be wonderful to uh, have you back either on this or on Love That Album, or maybe, you know, uh, Sammy and Will will listen to this and they'll say, oh, we'd better have Hank on the uh, Gentleman's Guide <laughs> to Midnight Cinema. You never know. So uh, this could be the humble step towards great podcasting adventures out there. We'll see. I'm happy to be here anyway. Anyway, that, no, that's terrific. So um, for those of you out there listening who may not be on the Facebook groups and haven't seen your posts before, give us a little bit of background about uh, your love of cinema and music and where your interests lie. Well, it seems that I'm one of the very few people in sort of our great Facebook community who doesn't actually have a... Who, who's not in a band or as a blog <laughs> or in doing a podcast or anything like that. I'm basically just a fan of right. music and movies especially, and I've been as long as I remember. So what, what, and, were, your, uh, what were your early you know, your early musical and film loves? What do you recall? Well, well this is uh, where things get a little bit embarrassing. I don't really remember what I liked as a child, probably just, you know, whatever was on the radio. But uh, around 1986, something happened. I heard Europe, the final countdown. <laughs> and it, uh, it blew my 10-year-old mind. So for like the last part of uh, the 80s, I was all about the hair metal. <laughs> right. Yeah, so now, a lot of now, now I, yeah, now I put that out there and there's, there's no going back. Indeed, indeed. And are you still, are you still playing the final countdown, still taking your old vinyl and... And, uh, well, I have sort of a nostalgic affection for it. It's not the sort of the music that I listen to the most, but, you know, I haven't sort of disowned it completely, even though some <laughs> of it's kind of crap. But then, then um, I, I guess at the sort of early 90s, I was around 16, 17 years old, so I was the perfect age for grunge to happen. Mm -hmm. 
And then I got into all those bands, and that led me to another sort of all kinds of indie rock, and eventually to sort of alternative mm-hmm. country and country music and punk and all kinds of stuff. So tell me, because what's the uh, Danish music scene like? Was is there anyone there who really really excites you? Um, is, is it is it a big popular scene, or are you mainly sort of relying on a lot of your music through uh, through England and America and the like? Well, I think probably sort of a pretty large percentage of my music collection is probably American music. I kind of like Americana, you know. Mm, yes. And so there's some, I don't really know that many Danish bands. I'm, I'm sort of the worst period of in music history, sort of like the black hole of music history, is sort of Danish pop music from the 1980s. Okay. And, uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, people, I'm from 1975, born in 1975, so mm. people in Sort of my age and uh, a little bit younger, a little like five years younger or older, they have this very unfortunate tendency to wherever you go to a party where there's a lot of people together, sort of when people get drunk, they start sticking on this god awful 1980s Danish pop music that uh, you can't seem to get away from. I'm not not sure what what that is, but it's sort of been following me my whole life and I don't know how to get away from it. Oh dear. So you just turn up your kind of loud. Yeah, yeah. Just, you know. Get drunk and sit there and smile. And wait for it all to go away. <laughs> and your film, so, uh, your film background. What films have been? Well, I, uh, I think also from a guy who's my age, when you sort of read people describe how they really got into mu- uh, movies, there was a Pulp Fiction was really a big deal for me. Sure. When I was around sort of eight, 18, 19, something like that. Before that, I was just a guy who loved movies and you know watched a lot of them, but uh, didn't really think that much about it. It was Pulp Fiction that sort of really made me aware of there was somebody behind the camera, and it was important who the director was, and who they were inspired by, and, mm-hmm. you know, all, all that. So that's where I sort of transformed from being just sort of a guy who liked movies to sort of being a sort of real fan, right. real cinephile, you might say, who was, you know, spent an inordinate amount of time talking about movies, watching movies, reading about movies, and so on. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, that's, that, that seems to be a sort of a movie that was sort of a sort of a gateway movie for a lot of guys my age. Oh, yeah. No, I certainly remember going uh, the first time to see Pulp Fiction and thinking that that, at the time, was the quickest two and a half hours I'd spent in a cinema uh, yeah. to that point. So- All right. Well, thanks for, very much for that background. That That's a fantastic start to the show. And what we're going to do now is go to a quick break. Now, I have, actually I haven't said what it is that we're going to be covering. Now, if you'd listened to the previous episode of See Here, we'd said at the end of the show that we were going to be covering uh, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. And that will be coming up now in episode seven because, well, I'm basically waiting for the others to come back and tell me what it was like, whether they got into the auditions of their respective nations got talent episodes. So what we decided to do for this time is talk about a movie from 2012 from Northern Ireland. Uh, it's actually only just made its way to Australia. We're a little bit behind the times down here. But uh, Hank, I put out the call and you responded, so you'd obviously seen it a little while back. The film I'm talking about is called Good Vibrations, based on a true story. Now, those words are usually words that put ice into my heart. Uh, I don't really give a rat's ass <laughs> whether something is based on a true story. And yet, as I'll probably make the point fairly shortly, that if the film wasn't based on a true story it's central conceit in a work of fiction you would have said you've got to be shitting me that could not happen but it's uh it's allegedly true so uh, we'll discuss it anyway good vibrations from 2012 from northern ireland 
Uh, we'll have a quick podcasting break, and then Hank and I will be back shortly to uh, discuss good vibrations. You're listening to See Here. Son, it's time we have a talk. About what, Dad? Well, son, pretty soon you'll want to look at naked girls. Some movies have lots of naked girls and things that make you feel strange. Mm, like Sasha Gray videos? Oh, you've got to start off slow, son. Save the triple penetration gangbangs for when you get old and miserable. Savor the sight of bare breasts from a bygone era before they were a Google away. Supper time, you two. And remember, no incestuous roughies or rapey pink films until after dinner. (laughs) (laughs) The Trashy Trio, covering Euro sleaze, Japanese pink films, American roughies, or any other sordid entertainment that comes their way. The Trashy Trio, a podcast to listen to while alone, with headphones on. Probably in your closet. Under some covers. Once upon a time in the city of Belfast, there lived a boy named Terry. Do you want to come back to my mum and dad's? No. Do you want to go back to my mum and dad's? No. I want to open a record shop. We have every kind of beautiful record on our shelves. Record out your past. So what? You're making a record. Will you record us too? I'm not that pissed. If we don't get a record soon, it'll be too late. What do you say your name was? Fergal. Fergal Shaggin. That's the best thing I ever recorded. Everybody has to hear them. Everybody. Do they have any good-looking friends? What is wrong with you, people? That was all going to be absolutely fine. Trust me. You gave me the best two minutes of my life. John Peel. It's so good, I'm going to do something I've never done before. We're back from break. Thank you very much for downloading and listening to this episode of the See Here podcast. As I mentioned before, Tim, Wendy and Sticky are not here with me, but Hank Hellman is, and I'm really, really happy and grateful for him being available to discuss 2012's film Good Vibrations from Northern Ireland. So I think before we get into the discussion, uh, I'll give a bit of a, um, let's see what it says here on IMDb. A chronicle. I actually, I have a question first, if you don't oh, mind. Oh, please, go for it, go for it, yeah. When, uh, when Tim's not on the show, does that mean that we don't get one of those uh, cool little intros that he always does for each, each show? Ah, uh, no, got, got it all covered. I uh, actually sent him a, a text earlier on today saying, hey, Tim, 
I need a uh, I need an intro. So he sent me an intro, and that's on the show. So uh, very cool, very uh, cool. Uh, that's all I needed to know. It's, it's not really see here if uh, Tim doesn't give his intro. So now he's done it. You, very you'll, cool. you'll be hearing that when I uh, piece the show back together. Uh, so anyway, but yes, a bit of a scant sort of synopsis here. A chronicle of Terry Hooley's life, a record store owner, instrumental in developing Belfast's punk rock scene. That, that really sort of short sells it. I'm not really quite... I, I should have probably gone and looked for a better synopsis, but never mind. <laughs> we'll we'll go with one series. I mean, you know, that, that, the crux, I guess, is you know, the crux of the film. So Terry Hooley, so he, he's a fellow who, um, you know, if you read any of the articles on this interwebby thing, is a man who, you know, he, he's still around and he's uh, he still owns a shop called Good Vibrations, um, which has closed down and opened up a multiple of times. But um, he, you know, according to the people who who loved him for what he did says he looms larger than life a real character and the film sort of really represents that so the film is set against the backdrop of what was called the troubles the uh, conflict in northern ireland between the catholics and the protestants that ran for many many years i don't know about you hank but i certainly remember growing up and watching the news and hearing of uh, bombs going off in ireland and conflicts with, uh, with with the British, between the British and the paramilitary units in Belfast. It was quite distressing, but I never really sort of put much of an idea at that time as to what was actually going on. I've read a little bit about it recently, so I have, I guess, a little bit of an idea, but um, really, I, I guess, through all that time, I never sort of delved terribly much into the history of, you know, the origins of the conflict. And the film here is more about Terry's story really than sort of giving much of a background as to what the origins of the troubles actually were. But we'll discuss that later on as to whether that was a good or a bad. But really, I guess I'll hand over to you first of all. What were your impressions of the film? What drew you into going to see it? And when did you actually get the chance to see it? I, I think I, I can't remember if it's the first thing I heard about it. I think, uh, you know, the British uh, critic, the BBC guy, Mark Kermode, Yes, I think it was his film of the year. The, I can't remember if it was last year or the year before, whenever it was opening in England, I don't remember. But he was very enthusiastic about it and sounded cool, so I checked it out. And I liked it. Uh, I think it's a good film. And uh, I think it's... Uh, you mentioned a couple of things that very important already, that sort of it's one of those films where it's actually important that it's a true story. Because I, I get the exact same impression whenever sort of it usually means that it's a bad TV drama, whenever it says that it's based on right. a true story. Yes. <laughs> And the context of the troubles is also very important because it, that's at sort of the heart of the movie, and we might get back to this. Is really sort of in what it's really good at is showing why, in a very sort of specific time and a specific place, why a certain type of music mattered so much to people. Yes, and uh, it, it tells that story quite well. Mm. Uh, I like. Uh, I think it's one of those films where you feel in good hands, sort of uh, from the very beginning. First of all, it starts with a Hank Williams track. I wondered so aimless, life filled with sin. I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. 
That's always a good sign when it's a movie about music. You get the idea that you know these people know what they're doing because you know who doesn't love Hank Williams? And actually, it's interesting you mentioned that Hank Williams song, which is "I Saw the Light," which at a yeah, very that's also crucial, a very crucial point in the film later on, that song gets played again in very appropriate context, doesn't it? Yes, and sort of uh, Terry Hooley, the main character, he has sort of several of these sort of moments where he sees the light. Yes. He realizes something important throughout the movie. So it's a good choice and it's a good song and it's also even though it's sort of, you know, honky-tonk country music, it's also sort of what you would never call Hank Williams uh, punk, but he's got some of that, you know, he's a wild man and he's raw and he's got a lot of heart and there's some melancholy and all that sort of that fits this uh, movie somehow. I know that there's been a lot written in recent years about country music and punk music obviously having, well, not obviously, but having having some sort of relationship and a lot of um, punk musicians uh, or, or people with, I guess, that punk spirit sort of found themselves drawn to country and I mean you know like bands like you know, in modern Americana bands like Uncle Tupelo uh, probably had very much of a, a punk sounding spirit there don't they? Oh yeah and before, I think in the 80s you talked about cow punk. Yes, yes. You know, like and all that and well there's something about sort of I think it comes from that old sort of outlaw country. Right. It's sort of you know, there's a lot of uh, you know dark violent sexy and raw and all those things that sort of sort of a bit outside the mainstream and all that I think uh, sort of the so I, I that, think that the fact the fact that uh, Hank Williams is seen as um, uh, uh, Terry Hooley's patron saint is uh, <laughs> you know, probably quite an appropriate thing so yeah and they, they don't overdo it which is a good thing no, he only yeah. sort of shows up once or twice so that's fine Right, right. So we should say that, okay, so the central conceit here, I mean, the, the IMDb critique or description of the story was you know, quite inadequate there. So we should say that the central conceit in this film is that music could bring warring factions together. Uh, in this case, the, you know, the warring Catholics and Protestants. And really, that's a central conceit that is so unbelievable. If the film had made out from the beginning that this is purely a work of fiction and what if music could bring people together, you would say, well, that's that's basically, you know, hippie pie in the sky. Yeah. But, uh, although, mind you, Terry had gone and said that the reason that he put this across was because he was an old hippie. So um, it's, uh, you know, I, I guess it's quite appropriate that that would have been his natural reaction to do. But the fact that it actually worked in a limited way in his uh, street in Belfast, where he you know, started up this record store, uh, was, is just really all the more amazing. And you know, as you said, the fact that we had such an unbelievable central conceit makes the fact that this is based on a true story seem for once to be quite an appropriate declaration. Yeah, because it does a pretty good job of setting up that for Terry's generation, all of a sudden it shows how when sort of the troubles really began, everything changed, that everything became about the troubles you were on one side or the other and there was sort of no real room to be in the middle where he felt where that's where he belonged and that yes. sort of you couldn't you couldn't really people wanted you to be on one side or the other mm. so so it's uh, it's probably really important that uh, that all the sort of all the musicians the punk rockers and all those uh, guys they're all sort of a younger generation yes sort of so, so, so it's actually they're showing him the way 
and then he he goes to this uh, concert where he listens to this uh, punk rock band, and he has one of those I saw the light moments where sort of he suddenly realizes well, that it's well. I've I've got a note here saying that you know there were two key epiphanies for him. The first one, which we've already gone and spoken about, looking through his record collection after he's been attacked and discovers that that's going to be the way how he's going to join the local teenagers uh, is through yeah. his record collection, showing the music, and he has that classic line when he's uh, getting the warring factions together saying, all right, and no one's to try and kill me, all right? But also, the other key epiphany is in the club, uh, seeing uh, the band Rudy for the first time when uh, they play that song big time. spirit, the camaraderie of the audience, uh, the moment where he stands up to the cops who'd invaded the pub searching for underage drinkers, and they're all brought together at this moment where you know, Terry knows that the old complexity of music had to be stripped back, and, and this band Rudy had personified that spirit, you know, just like the complexities of the Troubles had made people warring, then he knew that the complexities of music had been stripped back, these guys had already done that. And he loved that this was the moment, this is what he fell in love with music as a child. And that's sort of set up really beautifully in the opening scene of the yeah. ball listening to Hank Williams. And, but not only does he smile like a child again, <laughs> but all these punks, they embrace him. He, they pogo, he pogos, they put his, their arms around him because they think, right, well, this guy with the straight haircut and the terrible jacket and the peacenik badge, He's one of us. He gets it. He stood up to the cop. He's a punk like us. Doesn't matter what he wears. It's not about the fashion. He's got the spirit. And they all jo join in. And that, for me, is, like, I think one of the absolute key, if not the key moment in the film. If, if this yeah. were GGTMC and I was being asked, what's the, um, not the MVT, the, uh, the make or break, that scene would be the make for me, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It, or at the very least, they don't care that he's older. There's somebody who says, I can't remember if it's him, who says at one point that these uh, kids, they don't give a shit. No, they don't. They, no. just, they, they, just, they just want a sort of a little room to breathe. Yep. You, you know, they don't want to be part of one side or the other. They just want to have some fun and some excitement and to be left alone for a little while. But they also bring something there. They bring a community. They bring like this uh, yep. community spirit you know, outside the rest of the world is killing each other. But in that pub, he had a community. He had a group of people that like, he'd lost all his friends. Either, um, you know, it, it, he said earlier on in the film that he had his left wing friends and his right wing friends and um, people who like this type of music, people like that type of music, but they all got together in the pub to drink. But once the Catholics and the Protestants set that line in the sand, he had no community anymore. All of a sudden, he had the punk music community. That was what he had. And there was, I, I thought there was the irony considering that, like, early in the film, we find out about. Uh, he had these, uh, his father, who'd been up for a council election a dozen times under a socialist platform. And, you know, you would have thought that that would have brought him together as a, a community. And ironically, it was just another set of rules that he had to follow in his lifetime. Uh, he had to 
follow these rules for reasons that he didn't understand. It had nothing to do with uh, community. But here in this pub, with that song, with this band, under these circumstances, he had a community. Yeah, I think one of the sort of major themes of this movie is sort of the positive role of escapism. Of escapism is usually something that sort of has bad connotations, negative connotations. Sort of, but sometimes you actually really sort of need an escape. And if there was a time that you might could need to escape a little bit from sort of your surroundings and whatever was going on, it might be you know during the troubles, in the 80s, in Belfast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's established early on with sort of the great montage at the start of the film during the year uh, when the uh, great Hank Williams track is playing yes. where they sort of capture that magic of just being a little kid with a record player and uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's a movie is good about sort of all the sort of magic of music yes and there's but that, that's also sort of I think most of us can probably remember that sort of sort of child going through your dad's record collection or whatever and just escaping to somewhere and sort of in a way sort of all of Cherry's life is about escape. He just wants to get away mentally from where he is. And sort of, he finds this also actually to the detriment of, of some things. But maybe we can get back to that. But sort of, and when he finds these kids who just want to play these uh, fast uh, punk songs and have a good time, mm-hmm. it's sort of really liberating. And it's almost sort of where sort of the idea of sort of escapism almost becomes sort of political in itself. Just the, the fact of you don't want to be part of the sort of the politics at the time. It's almost political because everybody else around you wants you to be part of this weird scene. Well, that, it's, so, it's great you mentioned it because you remember there's that bit where he um, he has that first gig, I think, to organize for Rudy and or he always organizing a DJ night and he sees a couple of his old mates in the street and basically he indicates to them, I'm not interested in the politics, I'm just you know, out to make music and they basically... Um, piss him off and they you know one rips up his flyer and you know you either take sides or you know you're you're one of them and you know so he, he's yeah you're right completely you know he wants to escape yeah. and and that in itself is a political act which his uh, former friends find distasteful yeah and and sort of the that's why the sort of the context and the very as you started out saying that the idea that this is a true story is very important because it's sort of it's this whole context of this political struggle and the struggles in general the troubles in general that means that that tells you why this music is so important and matters so much and it's such a liberating force for these people where you know in some other situation it might just be you know a commodity or whatever but here it matters because of sort of the historical context well i mean we always sort of speak about you know what were the origins of punk and i know that this is something that our, our good compatriot 
from both the Love That Album and uh, See Here podcast and certainly, you know, uh, on the GGTMC, Eric Reanimator, who's passionate about his punk. And uh, I, yeah. I know that, you know, he, he's thought about this and I know a lot of people have sort of gone and, you know, said well what were the origins of punk is it you know is it the american cbgb scene is it you know uh, in england as a reaction to political events there in the mid 1970s i mean of, of course i would have said well you know brisbane australia's own the saints were um, you know, probably the first punk band but really you know punk encompassed a lot of sort of stuff you know the american side of punk was poppy sort of thing i mean you, to the extent where you get people arguing on the uh, feed my ears facebook page that you know well the ramones weren't really punk they were just a, a beach boys tribute band playing really very loud <laughs> the the english side of things you know the sex pistols and the buzzcock uh, but over here you know, the songs in in this film they're both some some of these you know like teenage kicks the song which still resonates very much today is just a great early 60s girl group type pop song energy and really you could argue i guess once again that in the midst of all this political upheaval just the fact that there was another group of guys who were probably that's why terry was so attracted to them uh when, when they played that song and knew it was a great great song that he sent to john peel was because in the midst of all this trouble he found a group of kindred spirits who didn't want any of that they just wanted to hear songs and sing songs about about love you know and like his He's crazy about the Shangri-Las, as he uh, as he talked yeah. about later on with the guy from Sire Records, and uh, and it's all about this sort of it's all about this sort of the two or three minute single. It's not yeah, about yeah, this. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. not about the prog prog rock shite. Somebody says at some point. <laughs> right, right. So and and once again, that's punk. That's punk. You know, going going against the grain. Actually, in in the first episode of See Here where we spoke about the Gigi Allen story, the film Hated. Tim went and brought up the notion that uh, you know Gigi Allen had gone and really pushed the limits and pushed the boundaries and was rolling around in shit on stage and threatening to kill himself. But then when you know uh, he found an audience who loved what he was doing, he's saying, oh, you like that, do you? Right, well, the, I'm going to go do country music because that's going to piss you off. <laughs> and that's punk. Uh, it's punk by not doing what you expect punk is. And uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of that spirit about what Terry does and what the undertones do. I guess, like nowadays, I mean, it might be sort of hard to sort of imagine there was a time where it wasn't DIY because, you know, what's now killing off the major companies is that so many people are recording in their own bedrooms. You know, your, your multi-track recorders are cheap and people are recording stuff in their own bedrooms and putting it out on YouTube or Bandcamp or whatever, either professionally or just for people to listen to, and they don't need the big companies really as much as they used to but you know then there was a time where you know terry's spirit to diy i mean he wanted to get the bands heard through the big companies but he wasn't going to let that stop him from putting out teenage kicks himself that no, was it's, DIY. It's, it's that was very no, go it's on. very much a story it's very much a story and, and a sort of the movie that's sort of linked to a, a certain time where like you say record stores really mattered and radio stations really mattered and sort mm. of 
in a way that they don't do now. I love that little historical tidbit that they threw in there of uh, John Peel playing Teenage Kicks for the first time. And he loved it so much. He said, this song has really made my world and I like it so much. I'm going to play it a second time. I'll tell you what, you know, I've not done this for ages, but I think we ought to hear that again. Hold on a second. Just talk among yourselves. Listen this time, when you listen to it this time, those of you who are familiar with the work of Loudon Wainwright, uh, last time I played it, the pig said, that lead singer sounds like Loudon Wainwright at times. It may sound a bit fanciful, but listen to it again and see what you think. An excuse for playing it twice. And when you see Terry and his wife Ruth uh, hearing it on the radio, he comes off the, off the toilet and, and she's standing there, you know, listening to the song on the radio, and she just screams in excitement. And it sort of reminded me of um, that moment in the film. Have you seen That Thing You Do, the uh, Tom Hanks film? Nope, from, sorry, uh, I haven't. Okay, well, there's this moment in, uh, in that film in the uh, 1990s, which I know a lot of people have dissed, but, you know, I'm a huge fan of, as is Wendy and Tim, where, um, you know, it's about this fictitious group called The Wonders, spelled O-N-E-D-E-R-S. Everyone calls them the Oneders. And they, re- they self-record their, their big song, That Thing You Do, which is played 10,000 times in the film. And there's just the classic moment in the film. If you don't go back to watching the whole film, just look on YouTube for the scene where they first hear their song on the radio. And I compare this scene to that scene because it's just such an exciting moment. You really get the sense of the thrill. Every performer, every band uh, I, well, I mean, it's maybe not such a big deal today because you put out a song, you put it on YouTube, thousands of people will hear it. But, you know, back in the day, I imagine hearing something that you'd put a lot of love and dedication into and you wanted people to hear, and it gets played on the radio. What was then, along with television, you know, they were the mediums. That was the way people got to hear or discover music for the first time. And it was just so exciting for them. And I compare those two scenes. It's just really beautiful, really wonderful moments. <laughs> and that's, one of, that's really one of the stables in sort of the music film. That scene has to be there. I saw, I saw Coal Miner's Daughter not, not a long time ago. Oh, I haven't not, seen not, it. Not too long ago about uh, Loretta Lynn. And there's yeah, yeah, also yeah. A, sort of a scene exactly like that where they're driving in a car somewhere and sort of some local station plays her song. It, that's got to be in there. And it's a good one in this film. I really like this. It's a very great. It's a good scene because you know where he's coming from the toilet and he's always he's really bummed because <laughs> he almost missed it. Yes. And then, well, I'm playing it again. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just dancing around. It's, it's lo- good. I'd love to know whether that was a true moment or whether they sort of worked that up just because it looked good. And I tell you I what, think... if they played with the truth on that, I don't mind. And that's that's the beauty of this. You know, it's it's such a likable story, such an optimistic story. When everything goes down, he always finds a way to bring things up. And I know there are some people who have a problem with that, but really, in the context of this film, I, I want those moments. And I, I yeah, it's a, it's a fun well. film. Sort of what you really need for a film like this is sort of you got the good story, and maybe it's sort of a bit cliched, but it's 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 interesting enough because it's a sort of in a different context where you, we haven't really seen it take place before. I mean, who's who's seen a lot of films that take place in Belfast? I right. So, and the central performance is really good, and he's in so like every scene, so he has to be good. The well, that's, let's talk about so there that's uh, Richard Dorman. Now, I'm not a Game of Thrones person. I've never watched it and don't have the interest in it, but I, I'd be interested in knowing whether Game of Thrones fans watch this film and sort of say yeah i could expect him doing this or wow i never thought he'd do something so completely different I, I, but uh, yeah my feelings about him he, he absolutely 
carried the film, not because anyone yeah, else. Never seen. Right, and essentially this is this is his story. Everything else, I mean, ironically, even though the bands that he champions, you know, the Undertones, the Outcasts, uh, Rudy, and punk music in general, they're all supporting players. They all sort of revolve around him. This is how he finds his own personal way around uh, those, yeah, this horrible scenario. And those, and those bands, they're all impossibly good. It's just sort of, it's a, sort of a, a central conceit of this movie, sort of that the first sort of punk rock bands he walks into this concert, and the band is fantastic. That's mm. big time song. It's really great. I mean, you'd think that more realistically, you, you find some local band, band and they were pretty crap, but, you know, that's not this movie, so that's fair enough. <laughs> I guess a, a problem that I have with a lot of biopics and, you know, the two most obvious examples in recent year uh, were Walk the Line and Ray, and we'll actually speak a lot more about this in episode 7 where we're talking about uh, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. But those films are, you know, they're episodic in nature, and I never really sort of find myself going along with the flow because it's like, oh, well, we have to include this part of their life, and we have to include that part of their life, and I'll, I'll go into a lot more in, in that episode in the Walk Hard story, what I had problematic with uh, those films but once again even this film was a little bit episodic in nature and yet the central flow of of terry hawley sort of finding his way through um a a lot of the uh warring factionism and the escape as as uh you said still link everything really really nicely and even though it's spread out over a period of a few years i mean there, there are a couple of shortcomings uh, like okay, so for instance, his um, relationship with his wife starts to falter. I mean, it, it's uh, obvious. I don't think he's ever really done right by her because you know he put oh. the music first, despite telling her he put her first. But once she has uh, their their child, he's he knows she's giving birth, and he's down the pub because well, I have to be here because you know music is what I do. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's one of those sort of slightly thankless roles where she's sort of almost sort of angelic and she's right. uh, she's way she's way too hot for this guy and she's sort of way too, <laughs> way too, way too understanding and yep. but 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 on the other hand this is not i mean you know you could have like a sort of a kitchen sinky drama about how their marriage falls apart because he's not uh, paying attention to her and the kid but you know this is not that movie and i'm, right. I'm glad they don't they don't go down that road but Correct. he but he gave but he does get off a, a bit easy sort of you you know you, you keep a, you're very simple you like him even though he's you know you're happy that you're not married to the guy. Right. Well, that film is, um, it was written by uh, let's, uh, Colin Carberry and Glenn Patterson. I'm not sure what else they've done before and directed, I think these might be first time directors. I'm not sure. Uh, Lisa Barris, Desar and Glenn Laban. And yeah, they've definitely decided to say, right, well, the story that we're going to tell is Terry's story and we want you to like yeah. him. We, you know, he's a lovable rogue. And the fact is, like, based on an interview that I saw on YouTube with Terry Hawley, they're basing their film on him telling them the stories. I don't know how much they went into, uh, you know, interviewing the members of these bands or interviewing uh, Terry's ex-wife or any other characters, you know, who, who are portrayed in the film. Uh, it seems to me like they've relied purely on Terry's stories once again because you find yourself so drawn into his character and he's got this smile. Like, you know, every time he walks into the bank manager to say, 
I'm going to set up a record shop. I want to press 3,000 records, please. And you see the bank manager's perspective. You know, this guy, he, he comes in and it looks like he could talk his way into anything. Yeah, yeah. he's got this conviction that he will get this done. And he doesn't know how and he doesn't know why, but it's going to happen. It works. Yeah, no, I think they're absolutely right in focusing. And, and I agree with you about what you said about biopics. And they're always too long and they have to fit in everything. So it's better like this. It's sort of a relatively brief amount of time and sort of just just the central story of this guy's life and I, and I think that's the right choice and it's a good central performance and the movie is a lot of fun and uh, the music is good which oh, is crucial to a film like this we even we, we even get a little suicide at some point That's right, yeah, yeah, Dream Baby Dream. I don't know if, you, um, if you're a Bruce Springsteen fan or not, but... Yeah, you know, I know. Uh, like, I think during the uh, Devils and Dust tour, he was playing, at the end of his live shows, he was playing a version of Dream Baby Dream, which is really, really stunning. Yeah, I've seen that on YouTube. It's yeah. great. And also, when you would listen to the... Uh, especially the Nebraska album, you know, where he's screaming and everything. He's, he's definitely a guy who's heard a little bit of uh, Frankie Cheardrop and stuff like that. Yeah, that's great. I think maybe a lot of those sort of garage rock and pop bands, I think that might be a little Steven who knows all that. But, you know, never right, mind. okay, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've listened to... Um over the net couple of uh, the episodes of um, uh, Little Stevens Underground Garage I think that's now available yeah. as a podcast so um, it's pretty good but we digress no yeah this this <laughs> is this is a great soundtrack I'm I'm convinced I'm going to go out and uh, buy the CD sometime uh, during the week if I can track it down because uh, as well as the punk stuff and really I you know, I don't have much of a punk collection I've only sort of you know, through Eric recently sort of been getting a bit of an interest in uh in, in, and, and through Tim, actually, for that matter, uh, an interest in punk music. So this has got some great classic punk songs, but it's also got uh, some music from, well, you know, it's got obviously, you know, the Hank Williams, I Saw the Light, but also got Bert Yanch, who is like an absolute Stone Cold favourite guitarist of mine doing his tune, uh, Angie, which, yep. well, actually, it's not his, Davey Graham originally did it, but, you know, Bert Yanch is probably most famous for having covered that uh, that tune. And it's got the Shangri-Las on it, and got, you know, ends, the, the closing credits is a star by David Bowie, so it, it's really a wide-ranging soundtrack of songs here, you know, some... some and I, I love the end credits, by the way. They yes, do a thing that, where, where they show the pictures of the real people. Right. I love it when they do that. I, whenever a movie does that, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a big fan. I love that. I'm, I'm completely with you. I know some people have a problem with that, but no, nah, not me. Not me. I, yeah, I'm, no. I'm with you. And it was, it was done in such a great way. Uh, I, I, yeah, no, absolutely love that. And you've already mentioned it. Yeah, the opening montage of. Uh, There's yeah. a lot of uh, montages in the film. Right, right. And, and you know, the, I guess th those moments where they um, have the words up on the screen, are, you know, what that era was and what this moment in the film actually meant. So it's not, I mean, it's, it's a conventionally told story, but they have just all these beautiful little moments of it that just sort of takes it away from being completely right with me from A to B to C to D. 
in yeah, sort of this the, story. the technical stuff is quite good. It's sort of very stylized. There's a lot of montages. The sound design is great. And sort of the use of voiceover and juxtaposition of images and all that. It, it's quite it's a really well made film. And, and a lot of the time, films like this aren't. They're just sort of very basic. This is it's a well made film. I think the, one of the only sort of missteps that he takes is when he goes to London. He uh, does some coke or something. I remember there's sort of this mm-hmm. sort of little mon- drug montage of him flying over the city with a big goofy grin. I thought that was pretty crap. That's uh, one of the sort of. I, no, I, look, you know, probably because I was so taken in with the rest of the film, I didn't even mind that. You know, I, I mean, no, it's not. It's, it's not too bad. It's just one of, sort of it, the few things that didn't really work. You know, it, it's so it's so quick. That uh, yeah. you know, blink and you can forget about. I think uh, the only bit that I wouldn't say I'm not saying it doesn't work for me on a filmic basis, but on one of those, oh, come on guys, this you know this doesn't hold true. Is um you know, that, that scene in the record store where the skinheads who he didn't allow in early on into the film come back to wreak their revenge and they beat the stuff yeah, out yeah. of him and yeah. like they they're they're kicking into him so hard. That you thought, really, and all you see later on is that he's got a broken nose from when the first skin had gone and head butted, and the, the, what's it called the uh, uh, the Liverpool kiss, or in this case the Belfast kiss. Uh, but that, that really, they the, the kicking that they were giving—you don't actually see him being attacked because it's all done behind the counter. But that was so hard, really. He he would have died from that, or at least ended up yeah, in the hospital. Yeah, and, and we didn't really need that scene. But no, no, no. I, I, I you know, maybe. One or two kicks, he's beaten that, too, but yeah, that, that was a little bit... But that's not a big criticism of the film. But ultimately, what I, I really love is you know, the fact that you know, life sort of keeps, keeps, keeps kicking him around, and he has every reason to sort of just say, right, I'm going to give up, I'm going to go hide under the bed, I'm not going to pursue this anymore. And yeah, he nearly does. But he just has these moments where he just keeps pushing on, and I don't think it's too much of a spoiler, really, to say what happens at the end of the film, because it's not really the end of his story, it's just where they choose to stop the film. So he has this moment where he's going to have this big concert to raise money for the record store, and hundreds of punks uh, or fans of the bands who he's gone and uh, promoted and plugged away at, because he thinks people deserve to hear these bands. He keeps saying, I'm playing this music because everyone needs to hear this music. They deserve to hear this music. And basically, he raises no money because everyone in that whole auditorium, what's it called, the Ulster, the Ulster Hall, all, yep. all the hundreds or thousands of people, they're all on the guest list. And he's raised no money. But even that, he just he says to his partner, he says, that wasn't the point at all to raise the money. We, we The point was... To let these people enjoy the music, and it does seem a bit cliched, but the fact is, it really happened, and it just—it was just a beautiful moment. They're all standing there on stage, and oh, what was it—the song that they sang? Was it a Sonny Bono song or something like this? Is it why are we singing this? Because we fucking can, and (laughs) and Hank Williams is up there on stage, uh, just. Look, I, I, yeah, sort of I, I know some, <laughs> right. right. I, I know some people could, you know, sort of have an issue with it, but I think if you do, you don't have a heart. I just no, I'm, no. It's sort of the type of film. It's very easy to be cynical about, but I actually think that it does a good job of, of showing, sort of, in a way that actually makes you believe why this music was so important and why mm. this is such a liberating force and why it matters. And that's that's not an easy thing to do without sort of, you know, completely being too cynical, yeah, too cynical about it. I tend to think that if this film had been, I don't know, maybe this sounds terrible to say, but if it's been made in America or you know with um, American production values, 
it might have turned slushy. But uh, I, I think in the hands that it was in, they made sure, they said, well, we want to keep a positive outlook because that's the sort of guy Terry Hooley really is. But they saved it from just getting uh, too sentimental, too sloppy. You know, there was no, there, you know, this wasn't the redemption of a man who'd fallen into hard times and uh, found his redemption through the love of a good woman. No, he, um, it, it's not that sort of thing at all. But it doesn't sort of necessarily fall into, uh, you know, it's not the same sort of depressing story that something like Control about Ian Curtis is either. It's oh, and I'm, and I'm glad they didn't go that route because it could have been a film about sort of this guy who's sort of blind to everything around him and <laughs> mortgages the house without telling the wife and <laughs> right, right. Sort of, uh, is, it becomes estranged to to his wife and child and all of that. But you know, who cares? This is not that story. I'll bring one more point up. I. Was, I, I did get to speak to Tim earlier on today, and he hadn't seen the film. But you know, he was. We ended up sort of talking a little bit about the commitments, and I sort of thought, right, well, you know, I, I guess the two films. I mean, okay, the like the commitments. I guess is a more personal story. It's it's really against you know, about a group of guys. You have one guy with a dream, with a vision, who takes a band well nowhere really. But he has these dreams and he wants to pursue it in a very do-it-yourself sort of fashion. And it wasn't about the band making success of themselves. It was just about them maybe having a, a more improved outlook on their life. And the backdrop was just about, I don't know if they're, you'd say they're in poverty, but they're in definitely in working class circumstances. And this film has a, a more wider political backdrop. But it really is about one guy wanting to improve the lives of other people um, and the fact that they never sort of really got to the top and no one had a top 40 single is besides the point. They, he improved their expectations of life and his own expectations of life. So on the surface, seemingly two very different films, and yet they had, a, I thought, a very similar underlying theme. Well, they do, but somehow uh, the commitments, it feel much more like a Hollywood film than this one, than this one does. I, I can see that. I can see that. Yep, yep. I, I, I mean, I, 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 li- I, I like it. I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a good fun. Look, you know, the, the commitments certainly did aim at a wider audience and certainly did have probably a wider appeal. And yet I tend to think that if a wider audience were, you know, would give this film a chance, then a lot more people who'd say, I haven't heard of this guy, I haven't heard this music, uh, and you know, it might not have the instant people to thousands that uh, listening to a group of uh, kids playing you know, stacks soul songs does but i think it could potentially appeal to a lot more people than the limited few who knew yeah about i it. think so too so it's, it's a fun movie and it's got a lot of hearts and it's fast-paced and you know it's very entertaining so the music is good so it's got all of that i think it could be a bigger hit than it has been so do you any key scene for you hank anything that you want to sort of you know, finish off or, or your final summary of the film? Well, I think one of the things that I think when I see this is growing up, I also heard in the news about the troubles and what was going on in Northern Ireland. Hmm. And it's weird when you live in Denmark, which is so much like England and Ireland, but at least but during this time, it was also so different. And it's sort of strange to see this now and to think that it wasn't so long ago. And it's not very far from where I am now that all this stuff was going on. And I think it does a good sort of a credible job of showing, as I think I've said a couple of times now, why this particular sort of music was so important and why it mattered and why music can be such a liberating force and sort of escapism can be a good thing and all that. And I mm. think it, 
I think it really does a, a, a pretty decent job of showing that sort of in a non-cynical way, but also sort of realistic enough that you believe in it. Yes, yes. And well, and once again, I, I, I mean, I know we've brought this up a number of times, but I'll ask you, would you have believed this possible if this was presented as a work of fiction? <laughs> if this guy says, I think music can bring us together, I mean... Would you have found? Would you have sort of found yourself going along with that central conceit? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> but it still would have made for an entertaining film, nevertheless. Yeah, because I don't think movie. I don't think they laboured on that point too much. Once they sort of got over that, it sort of became a story about a man trying to promote the music that he loves against the backdrop of other people shooting the asses off of each other. Yeah, and it's also it didn't you know change the world. It didn't make everybody lay down their guns and go home or anything like that. The troubles kept on. They kept up on blowing up shit and killing people. It's just that for sort of these kids, they got a little room to breathe and they found a little space where they could be themselves and just have fun and excitement. And that was important. It didn't, you know, change the course of history, but it, it mattered to those people at the time. Mm, mm. All right. Well, I think we've pretty much covered all that we wanted to say for um, uh, Good Vibrations. If uh, you haven't yet seen it, then I think you can get the impression from uh, Hank and myself that it's a very big thumbs up. Uh, yep, check it out. Go, go uh, on if you're uh, in the States and you have access to something like Netflix and get it that way or, or whatever means that it is that you can. Get a DVD or if you're uh, living in Australia and you're listening to this and it's got a cinematic run at the moment. So please venture out. I suspect it's not going to last terribly long the uh saturday night audience for its first weekend last night the cinema i was at was maybe about 15 20 people which is really not that very healthy and you know, <laughs> more's more's the pity i don't think that it's been advertised terribly well to be honest with you but oh. um but well look i should be grateful that it made it into the cinemas at all here up until about three four weeks ago i hadn't even heard of the film and you know two years old but i'm glad i had the opportunity to uh, see it on the big screen so um uh, any of you out there who um, think that what we've said sounds interesting and heard the uh, music clips that you've been hearing through the show sound great, then please check it out. All right. Well, um, look, Hank, once again, thank you so much for uh, joining me on this episode of See Here. It's been absolutely really fun to uh, talk with you about this great movie. And um, I, I know I can speak on the rest of the See Here crew that you'd be uh, more than welcome if you felt you wanted to to come back again or if you want to join me on Love That Album I'd be happy to have you anytime thanks for having me on the show it was a lot of fun right. now it remains to be seen whether it was uh, the beginning or the end of my podcasting career uh, no knows? no no it's, it's purely the beginning <laughs> purely the beginning I'm convinced alright okay. well I had a good time well, thanks a lot that's, that's, a, that's a great start that's all this is about alright and uh, for any of you out there who've uh, downloaded the show please do me the favour and the rest of the See Here crew the favour of uh, letting your friends know, anyone out there who loves their music as well as loving films, please let them know that we exist. Uh, you can find us at seehere.podbean.com or you can download us through uh, the iTunes store. Just type in See Here, and I should say that's C-H-E-A-R. I mean, I know it sounds fairly obvious because you're listening to us, so obviously you know how you found us, but nevertheless, I tend to think it's uh, worth reiterating that. Join the Facebook group. And please just start a music film conversation, make some recommendations of uh, films you'd like to hear us cover. And I know a few people have gone and put up uh, their lists before. I think you know, a couple of people put up like about 200 films in one hit. But, you know, you, you take it a little <laughs> bit slower than that, you know. But um, 
one thing I'd like to say is that uh, you know, I think we've tended to sort of go these uh, last few months with uh, you know, films covering issues, you know, in with modern music. I mean, maybe you know, the, the closest closest exception to that was a. Uh, the film that we discussed about Prairie Home Companion, but I can tell you that uh, Episode 8, I'm not going to reveal it here, but Episode 8 is going to go a long way away from uh, modern music. But this is a music film podcast, not necessarily a rock or contemporary film, uh, music film podcast. So um, uh, remains to be seen where we're going to go with Episode 8. Uh, coming out in August and in July, though, the uh, previously promised Dewey Cox story, Walk Hard, will be discussed when the rest of the crew uh, returns. And uh, I look forward to that. Once again, thank you so much for uh, joining and uh, thanks to Hank for uh, joining me on the show. So uh, you listening out there, be nice to each other, listen to some great music, watch some great films, and uh, we'll speak to you uh, on the next edition of See Here Podcast. Cheers. NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.